you're anything like us, you've been watching more than your fair share of Netflix this past year. And with such great original content, from The Queen's Gambit to the more obscure shows like Midnight Diner, we were curious what it takes from a product design perspective to create and deliver these shows to a massive audience in a way that's accessible not only to audiences here in the U.S., but all around the world. So we sat down to chat with Steve Johnson, Vice President of Design, and Rochelle King, Vice President of Creative Production at Netflix, to talk about how they approach inclusive design for a global audience, how they use a data-informed rather than data-driven product strategy, and why looking for passion rather than for credentials might just be the key to your next great hire. Two more quick things before we launch into the interview. This is the last episode of season five of the Design Better podcast. But don't worry, season six is just around the corner, where we'll be sharing interviews with guests like best-selling author Dan Pink, who'll teach us how to use persuasion to be better at our jobs, and Professor Sarah Seeger, an astrophysicist and planetary scientist whose research on exoplanets can shed light on how we can be better collaborators here on Earth. Finally, in between seasons, we're doing something fun and exciting. We're gonna do a bonus Q&A show where you'll have a chance to record your question about design, creativity, leadership, or just any of the topics that we cover here on the show. And we're gonna do our best to answer them for you. Just head over to dbtr.co slash AMA. That's dbtr.co slash AMA, all lowercase, and fill out that short survey there to submit your question. That's dbtr.co slash AMA, all lowercase. We would love to hear from you. All right, let's grab some popcorn and head over to the interview with Netflix's Steve Johnson and Rochelle King. Here we go. We're big fans of Gusto, who make it easy to run payroll, set up healthcare and other benefits for your business. They've made setting up the HR infrastructure for design better a breeze. Gusto's also one of the best design SaaS tools out there. Design Better listeners get three months free once they run their first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. We'll tell you more about them later in the show. Steve Johnson and Rochelle King, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Hi. Morning. It's always good to start from the beginning. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the work that you're doing at Netflix and also just like how the two of you work together. So I run a team that works with a lot of aspects of the content. And I like to think of our team as a blend of half creative and half operational. We have folks that are responsible for actually getting the content onto the service. We think about it like air traffic control and landing titles on the service. But then also thinking about all the different ways that we can represent that content on the service, whether that's visually through trailers, through language, synopsis, ratings, and all of those different elements. Also have a globalization team that works to translate the Netflix experience into the 33 plus languages that we support around the world. And I also have a operational team that supports marketing, you know, and a lot of their campaigns and work that they're doing as well. So that's my organization. Steve? If Rochelle's team designs the fashion around the passengers, we design the vehicles. So the design team at Netflix is responsible for all of the interaction design that helps bring members their content. What Rochelle was talking about, even as far as what's the box art and how do we help merchandise the asset itself? So how do we dress it up so that when people see it, they say, oh, that's interesting. And, and then they click on it. That environment around her is the design. And that's what XD does. And I work on that team. Steve, the last time I spoke with you, you've graciously come to a the class I teach a few times, you're working on a slightly different project, more like tools for filmmakers. You still do that type of work? Or maybe you could talk a little bit about that too. Yeah, we do. So both of our teams are not limited to just the consumer experience. I think that what tends to happen is people think about Netflix and they just think about when they go home and hop on the couch and you know turn it on. But since we're a global studio now and we're our own movie studio, we now are also looking at how can we bring efficiencies to the movie making process so that we can make it faster, more reliable, and we can make it more streamlined. So our teams also work on the studio tools. And it started off as being a small venture, but now it's roughly 30 to 35% of the XD team. And I think that um, when we think about our growth, 
that's actually the area that we're growing the fastest in. So imagine a set of enterprise level tools that really help Hollywood finally transform away from clipboards and walkie talkies, but to, you know, technology. Cause I think a lot of folks expect movie making to be like watching Iron Man. And if you actually saw how it's done, you would be shocked how absolutely analog it is. So one thing that's really challenging, especially in an organization as big as yours and as sophisticated as yours with multiple teams and lots of different products and different angles of, of the product is prioritization and knowing like what's the important thing to work on right now and for teams and for their leaders to have clarity about how to prioritize and what to focus on. How do the two of you think about that and how does that happen inside your teams? So there's a couple of things that happen. So one is from a product management perspective, we all work very closely with our PM partners and our engineering partners. And I think that normally the PMs are the what and creative production and XD are the how, just like consumer insights is the who. So priority always kind of comes down to what are the business goals? Our business goal right now, no secret, is to be a lot more globally focused. So once you start thinking about that, then we always have lots and lots and lots of different things that we can go after. But a first principle is, does that help us globally? And if so, how? And then that's what we prioritize higher than other things. You know, I think what I'll add is we are very member first. And especially my team, one of the things that we try to think about is how can we connect more folks to stories that they love? And how can we help them discover stories that they love by presenting those stories in a compelling and interesting way that's still really authentic to the story itself. And so I think what we prioritize is how can we tell these stories better? How can we help members find what they want? And then, so sometimes that might mean, hey, if we make our service available in more languages, that means that that's more accessible to folks around the world. And I think that's some of what, what globalization takes into consideration. We talk about, are there innovative and new ways that we might want to think about representing these stories or how can we do a better job at that? You know, how can we amplify angles of the story that folks might not have been aware of or considered before? And so that's a little bit of how we think about prioritization as well. So I would say we tend to be member first. The second thing though, is of course, we have so many titles on our service and we have to do this at scale. And like Steve said, we're doing it around the world. And so we also need to think about how are we smart in our craft and getting those stories out so that we can also scale with the volume of content that we have at Netflix and also to all of the different members around the world. So I would say scale is also another thing that we take a lot into consideration. So one of the themes that my team talks about a lot is what does creativity at scale look like? Because that's just going to help us serve more and more members around the world. I just want to double click, kind of dig into this a little bit more. When do you say no? So you, you talked about having this clarity of does it help us globally? So that sounds like that's a, an objective defined from the top. And then that can trickle down into teams and it, it creates a question and that can be brought into debates and design reviews and all sorts of different meetings. But how about saying no? What does that look like when you know new ideas come up that sound exciting? But you know, Steve, you pointed out you have to be an or company. You do have to say no to some things. And presumably, there's a ton of stuff you could do towards that global mission, and you still have to say no. How does no happen? I firmly believe that design without business sense is just decoration. And all the designers that we hire, all of them, Rochelle's team, my team, I think that's a first principle. So it really does come back to that. What is this doing to serve the business case? I've definitely worked in places to where people said, oh, this is cool. We should do it. And they get very passionate about it. And they really can't explain why. But at Netflix with us being so small and being somewhat flat and everybody really kind of having a vested interest in us being successful, there's always kind of this hypothesis of, hey, this would help solve this problem. So on our consumer side, at least, saying no is not all that difficult because since we A-B test everything, you have an opportunity to have three, four, five different ideas 
that you're very passionate about. Each one of those ideas needs to be uniquely diverse from each other. It can't be like, remember back in the old days, we'll test this one, then we'll move the buttons two pixels over and we'll test that one, we'll move the buttons over two pixels over. Like, no, 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 we don't do that. Like one has a button, one doesn't have a button, one has a slider, one is trying to infer who you are via interpretive dance. So we try to make sure that we test those different variations and then we get a signal. On our studio side, it has been a bit harder to say no. And the reason it's been harder to say no is because what I said at the very beginning, as far as us trying to revolutionize Hollywood, we're looking at it at all the fertile ground of all the things that we could do because so many things are analog. You're like, oh, God, okay, we could do because the laundry list is really big. So that's where we really just have to prioritize based on what are the engineering capabilities and what's the return on that design investment. But I'm not trying to BS and say that we have this utopian society. That's not true. We definitely have a lot of ideas. But the filtration process down that stream past the rocks to make very pure water is a lot easier simply out of necessity. The one other thing that I would add there, though, is then how many members does it really affect? If you want to talk about prioritization, we should have it tied to a clear business need, or, or at least you have a hypothesis for how this change is actually going to make an impact on the business or our members. And then we would say, how much of an impact, how many members will this really affect? And I think those are important factors that help us prioritize as well. One follow-up. So a number of years back, we spoke with a designer named Andy Law, and he mentioned, you know, on the consumer testing side, something called mountain testing, which I think, as we understood, is, is sort of like multivariate testing. Do you guys still do that? And if so how do you approach it? We do. Let me uh, clarify. So uh, we used to differentiate between the scope and size of the tests. And uh, maybe we still do that. I just haven't in quite some time. And the reason is I don't actually like saying, well, this is a small test. This is a big test. Some of the smallest incremental chains have yielded some of the massivest results. Uh, massivest isn't a word. We'll use it today. And, you know, some huge changes don't realize success for quite some time when people adopt. So I actually don't like T-shirt sizing a test anymore. I just like saying, what's the problem that we're trying to solve? How do you think that we can solve it? How can we make sure that it's scalable? Okay, to Rochelle's point, who is that member how many people can we affect? And then should we do it? Here's an example. Something that's also interesting that we struggle with is this. We may come up with something that's fantastic, but it really only serves a very small audience. So then we have to ask ourselves, not how important is that audience, but what's the return on that investment? And sometimes we go ahead and do it because that audience means a lot to us, like the kids space. But other times we might find that even though we think that it's successful, the engineering resource is going to that instead of solving the problem of it's hard to find things on Netflix. It's just not worth it at this time. I think what Steve is saying is really interesting because it's true. Sometimes we think that because something is small, it's not it's going to have small impact. You know, sometimes we think that just because something is big, it has big impact. So I actually think that that's a really great thing that Steve just flagged, which is this maybe false perception that we have about size and relative impact or importance. And it's probably good for folks in creative work to think about like, hey, even very small tweaks can have very large impact. And we should we should always be focused more on the size of the impact, not the size of the work, you know, that we're putting into it. That being said, what I might add about the concept of mountain testing is it's really meant to articulate when you feel like you're getting to that global, you know, you're looking for a global maxima versus a local maxima. And so you've iterated on all the things around this one kind of experience, and you're not really going to get any better results than what you already have because you've already tweaked enough of these little things. And so it's more to say, hey, do we need to take a bigger leap of an idea? We sort of come to the top of this mountain. Maybe we need to jump to another mountain in order to find a higher height is you know, how I, I think about it. And so do we need to shift so much of our perspective or so much of our foundational thinking around this experience that we have to break that, go to a completely different mountain and see if there's a higher height there that we can reach with this experience. And so that's when I think that that concept is useful. But I really like what Steve said, which is let's not also get too trapped on that. We're always looking for mountains because then you're probably not getting the most out of the one particular mountain that you might be on. 
Netflix is really well known for bringing data into the design process. And I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about what does that look like? How does that data come in? How do you use it to inform design decisions? And then maybe make the distinction between data-driven and data-informed and how you think about that. The thing that I would say about data is I always say it's important to remember that there's many forms of data. You know, and I think sometimes people get caught up on thinking that A-B testing or quantitative data is the only form or that it's a superior form. And I would just say that qualitative data, talking to consumers, asking them what they think about things, doing surveys with customers is equally important to help really give you that 360 perception of what's going on. And so the first thing that I think about when we talk about data is it's really important to have both a strong consumer insights or kind of qualitative team that is talking to consumers directly and hearing from them what they value and what's working for them. And then it's equally important to have a really strong data science team, you know, someone that's looking at the big data, combing through that analysis and really thinking about what are we learning at scale and in aggregate about our customers all over the world. So those two things in balance, are, I think, are important factors for input into the design process or into that creative process. And so luckily at Netflix, we have both very strong data science teams as well as consumer insights team and leverage the information from both of those to help inform our decisions on data driven versus data informed. I think that's a really, it's a very old discussion that goes back many years, right? And I think the difference is, again, not letting the data make the decision for you. Data driven, I think is really like, you're just letting the data tell you what answer to do, what's the right thing and just letting that push you. Data informed is that data is one of the many inputs that you use in making your decisions, right? And so it's informing your decision, but it's not driving the decision. It's that balance because the data might tell you one thing, but you still have some sense of judgment. Maybe there's other brand considerations or other considerations that you might need to take into account that the data just wouldn't happen to show you. And so being aware of all of those things and how they balance it is, I think, an important concept. Yeah, it's a correlation and causation exercise. This is one of my favorite debates. Like, if you ever want me to geek out on something, we can talk about data-driven and data-informed just as stupidly as we could talk about scomorphic versus flat. I think that lots of product managers say to me, we should be data-driven. And I bring up something as silly as ice cream causes polio back in the 50s, right? Where people truly believed this because they were only testing one thing. Like, well, kids eat ice cream, they got polio. It's like, no, there's so many other things that you can look at. You only test what you know. Therefore, the result that you get is only based on something that you already knew. And that's the reason that I am fundamentally against being data-driven. Where we should be data-informed is of the things that we tested, this seemed to work. Now that we're thinking about human behavior and other variables, do we believe those are the only things to test? And I think we can all speak of lots of things that, well, based on the data, we would have thought this, but then years later, you find out it was fundamentally wrong because you were overlooking something. So I don't mean to bash too hard on PMs, but it really does always end up being this thing where you cannot make the assumption that the things of which you're testing are absolute. Therefore, the data that comes from it cannot be absolute. It sends you in a signal or in a direction, but that doesn't mean that it's the only answer. So I think that both Rochelle and I, we operate on the data informed of the variables that we tried. This one seems to be the best. Let's continue to develop that. You spoke about you know PM being the what and XD design being the how, and you just spoke a little bit about this tension between data-driven and data-informed. Maybe you could talk about, both of you talk about the power dynamics between the design team and, and PM. I don't actually find there to be a lot of power dynamics because our PMs understand user experience. That's not something that I think that we struggle with at Netflix, really. But I do like the debate around things like data-driven and data-informed. What I will say is, is that the relationship, though, really has to be one of mutual respect. You have to respect your PM's judgment of the what. What are we going to go after? You know, and why? And I think that great PMs are one that say, this is 
what we believe the best option is for us to achieve our goal with the data that we currently have. But I reserve the right at any time to pull the plug on that and pivot and go in a different direction. And that's something that I admire. And it's hard. I mean, it's hard to invest people's time and energy into something and then ultimately say, this isn't working. We're going to do something else. And don't get me wrong. It definitely makes people feel like, oh, man. But then you're just happy. You're like on to the next thing, because I think that we've all probably been in these situations where you just keep on slogging toward it just because you said you were going to. All indications are this isn't going to work, but you're like, oh, but we got to meet that deadline. And that's just not how we are. So it's probably the healthiest PM designer relationship I think I've ever experienced. I think that when you have PMs that are as focused on the user experiences you are and, you know, feel like they are champions for the member experience, it's a great partnership to have. There still can be tension, right, between the what and the how. But I think that's a, a healthy tension to have. And something that Steve said very early on in the conversation is that he looks for designers that have business sensibility and understanding and capability. And I think that that's a really key characteristic for design to have because having that appreciation for business strategy or just being curious about business strategy and where the business is going gives you that bridge, you know, that you communicate with the PM on and you can align on as to what you're trying to accomplish together. So I think that having that characteristic definitely helps to build a better relationship with PM. Let's talk a little bit about ethics and design, which is something that over the past, let's say, year and a half or so has become a very hot topic because we've seen a lot of uh, good intentions going into work and the outcomes not necessarily aligning really well. What kind of conversations do you have in teams on a regular basis about ethics? Is that something that comes up? We don't explicitly talk about ethics, but we do talk about what's right for the consumer every day. My team is thinking about how do we translate language, you know, the Netflix experience for the world, because we're thinking about what imagery are we going to use to represent different shows? Then we think about representations. We actually have a lot of conversations, I would say, about inclusion and diversity in the team, which is a kind of the foundation for, are we making sure that we're representing things well, that we're not somehow inadvertently doing harm to different groups, et cetera? What is the consequence of those actions? Because we're so focused on representation. So I would say like, those are the kinds of conversations that my team has on a daily basis and thinking about, you know, what are we putting out there and how does that represent the content? So I would say that those are the conversations that we have more because that's my realm right now. I think Steve's realm, because he's doing the interfaces and he's doing the actual user experience, that's where you're starting to shift behavior and things like that. And I've seen lots of debates and lots of conversations on her team to where they may find an image that's a couple seconds of a show that they know will get more people to click, but they have these long conversations about the intention of the show or the way of which this is represented. That's not a good representation of what the show is, so we're not going to use it. And that to me is incredibly ethical. When I'm watching so many media companies streaming so much content now, and they're all trying to battle for eyeballs, I'm finding myself on lots of our competing services going, ooh, that looks good, and I'm just waiting for that scene. And I'm like, oh, they tricked me. So I think that there's a lot of time, energy, and effort put into, we wanna make sure we build a relationship with our members that we don't violate. On the design side, it's also ethics for who and where. You know, we're a global company. We have some content on Netflix that you watch in the United States, it's perfectly fine, but we have action shows that like we all love that are hyper-violent, but you play them in different parts of the world and they're like, that's not cool. So when we're trying to balance ethics, I mean, we're truly trying to figure out where are they and who is it for? And that makes the variability very interesting. We think that building long-term member trust is more important than some of those short-term things that we could do. We're a subscription business. And so we need folks to feel like they want to keep coming back to us over and over again for a, you know, a long period of time. And I think because of that, it probably aligns our goals better with like what's long-term term best for the, the consumer as well. 
Rochelle Seam just doesn't do it. Like when we were all in the office, I remember I was in the LA office once and like, you know how sometimes you hear a kerbuffle, like you hear people kind of talking loudly and you're like, ooh, let me walk by slowly so I can overhear this drama. This will be great. And I'm not kidding you. I'm listening to two of her producers debating if this one character had enough screen time in the show to represent the show. And it was such a fascinating conversation because I saw the artwork and I'm like, oh, that's badass. I can't wait to watch that. But what they were saying was, but wait a minute, though. This thing is about an hour and 20 minutes long. This person's only in it for 17 minutes. Do we really think this is worth And that's the kind of debate that I just don't think people understand happens at the human level in these hallways. And that's why I think that there's so much heart and so much attention to the ethics. When you have two people arguing about if that person represents the story in a way that doesn't manipulate others to click, that's awesome. Because there's a lot of other companies that are like, no, put that out there. We don't care as long as people click on it. you know. And that's just not what we do. To Rochelle's point, because we're a subscription company. And once you cancel us, you've lost trust. And it's hard to regain that. An example of this in action is Netflix is very easy to cancel. You can just go onto our website and cancel and there's no pushback. And if you think about the difference of that cancellation experience compared to a lot of other companies where you have to call in, you know, you have to talk to someone, you have to have them argue you back to, you know, whether or not you should stay, et cetera. It's a very, very different experience. It's much easier and much faster. And we did A-B test that, and obviously cancellations are much higher if you make it easier to cancel, right? But I think that fundamentally, we just feel like that's a better experience for our customers. And so even though the business metrics in that test would say that if we're trying to optimize for subscribers, we wouldn't make it easy for folks to cancel, but ultimately because we feel like it's just more important to have that good customer experience, we said it's, it's just fundamentally better for the customer, even if it hurts the business a little bit, at least was represented in this, this test. So that's an example of the kind of thing that we have done. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. If you sit all day at work, like most of us do, and you've never tried a desk that can transition between sitting and standing, let me tell you, it's a complete game changer. I often struggle with hip pain that's caused by prolonged sitting, And a standing desk has helped me switch up my posture during the workday so I can avoid that pain and just feel better. Standing while I work, it helps me get those creative juices flowing and it helps me focus and stay productive. I'm way more alert, which is helpful, especially after lunch. Each standing desk from Uplift Desk is built with solid materials. They have so many different beautiful woods to choose from. They're built to last and you can customize it to match your space. Plus, you get free shipping, free returns, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Just go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5, and you'll get 5% off your order. That's upliftdesk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Check them out. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit crashplan.com slash design better to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited time buy one, get one offers. Let's do a little thought experiment together. 
Imagine for a moment that you no longer have access to your computer. Say you spill coffee on it, it has an unrecoverable crash, or someone steals it. How much would a total loss of your data disrupt your work and your life? It would be significant, right? This is why you should be protecting all your work with an unlimited backup and recovery solution like CrashPlan. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. I dropped my laptop on marble stairs just about an hour before stepping on stage at a big conference in Europe, and I lost my presentation. I didn't have a backup. CrashPlan would have saved me in that moment. Businesses of all sizes can benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and then you can easily manage them all under one account. Just go to CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter to sign up for a free trial. Try it out and see what you think. Take advantage of their limited-time buy-one-get-one offer for Design Better listeners. That's CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter. Back up better with CrashPlan. You both spoke about your inclusive approach to your global audience, and that obviously ties to audience growth, so there's a clear ROI there. Are there any other examples you have about bringing an ROI lens to inclusive design? Something that I have said to the teams or folks that work at Netflix is, you know, obviously we're several thousand folks and we are as employees very different from the 197 plus million members around the world that we aim to serve. So I think that it is really important for us to be able to empathize and and get out of our own world and our own minds as much as possible and to try to think more about what the right experience is for those 197 folks that are not tech savvy, maybe not located in cities like most of our offices are, things like that. And so I think that anything that we can do internally to think about making better experiences for folks that are not like us is important. And so to that extent, the more inclusive that we can be about other perspectives, the better we get at at doing that kind of work. I was going to mention something that Steve does is I know that Steve, you've been forcing your team to use international content for all of their mock-ups. Most of your team, Steve, I think is located in the U.S., And like 90 plus percent of the team is located in the U.S. And so you have this tendency to when you're doing mock-ups and and working out, you know, prototypes and ideas, you're going to use the content that you're watching in the U.S. And Steve has like forced his team to only use content that's more popular around the globe rather than our internal content, because it does just give you a slightly different perspective. And it helps you kind of get in the mind of of someone who might be looking at this sitting in India or sitting in Switzerland or wherever else around around the world that our consumers might be. I think that's interesting. I think you have folks on your team that purposely use names that are not your standard American names and mock-ups and stuff also to just like force it. These are very subtle little things, but they're ways that help get you out of it and then maybe bring a different perspective to the work. Boy, do you dig into the interaction design and the flow when you don't recognize any title. And we all do it, right? Like you're sitting there and you're making a mock-up and it's like you love Stranger Things, you love Ozark, you love Lost in Space and oh my God, Tiger King. So you throw all those things in. And then the second you see that design, you're like, I love it. You're actually responding to the fact that you love those shows. So once you start throwing in things from India, Korea, Japan, Brazil, you've never heard of these titles before ever, you actually kind of look at it more. You're like, what is that? So now you're like, huh, well, how do I get to that? So I think that we have to find ways that when we're talking about inclusion and diversity, you're talking about reflecting the perspective of your target audience as much as humanly possible. Is that the way that Rochelle and I think about hiring? Yes. When you're taking a look at that room and you're like, hey, we're a global company and we're supposed to be figuring out how we can really stimulate more awareness and excitement in XYZ country. Oddly enough, nobody in this room has ever been there, ever born there, or has any relatives from there. That's interesting. (laughs) Right? So now we're just guessing. (laughs) We're just throwing things against the wall. When you bring in that perspective, that global perspective, be it from the folks that you hire or the way of which you design, then you're at least making sure that you're being more inclusive of the conversation that the people that you want to entice are having. I'm not going to say we're great at it, but we're definitely trying. And it's definitely something that we talk about quite often. I'll give you maybe just a couple more examples from my organization where it's really paid off and had impact. 
you know, because my part of my team's function is to help classify and organize the content on our service. And so my team is responsible for those rows that you see. So when you see the award-winning dramas from the 60s or something like that, that's something that my team is responsible for. When we first started to get into Korean content and K-drama, if you're not familiar with it, you think, oh, I'm just going to make a category called K-drama. But it's actually really much more rich and diverse than that. And there's all kinds of subgenres that exist. And because we actually have analysts that are Korean that really understand and love that content, they made a proposal to actually create much more nuanced and authentic subgenres, you know, like K-dramas about Chebol or uh, Muna romance. Like these are all things that are very unique to the genre of K-drama. And that suggestion would have never happened if we didn't have folks on the team who really loved it, who were authentically wanted to represent it and really familiar with it and all of those sorts of things. And we have so many stories of that where because of the folks that we have in our team and because they represent their own experiences from all over the world or their own experience as being part of the LGBTQ community, their own experience from being of different backgrounds or coming from different places, then they're actually speaking up and advocating for us to do things in our product and our experience that make it out to the public, that then make it out to the 197 million folks. And what we do see is that when we add that dimension and we add those nuances, it starts to speak much more directly to folks that are located in all these countries around the world, we see performance increase. So I have actually seen, when you ask about the ROI of inclusion, I have seen measurable impact on our numbers because we have made decisions that came out of suggestions or insights that we would have never gotten if we hadn't had folks in our team who could authentically represent those perspectives. I want to make sure it's not lost on anybody, though, that you even have to take a look at the makeup of the two people that are talking to you right now, right? Between the two of us, somebody within either Rochelle's team or mine touched 100% of your Netflix experience. It doesn't matter what it is. Whatever that experience is, either in Rochelle's team or mine, they touch that. But at this highest level, you're talking to two individuals that don't actually look like or come from what most of the design community leadership comes from, right? She and I go to conferences with our peers from all over the valley. And I mean, honestly, it's kind of lonely. It's like, it's me, it's Rochelle, it's a few other names that I won't mention, but by and large, if you took a look at all the executive leadership for creative and design in Silicon Valley and then definitely exploded it out across Warner, Time, DreamWorks, Legendary, Disney, etc., we are the definition of the term minority. So when you have Rochelle and I really thinking about how do we organize a global entity that can help bring the perspectives in so we can tell the best compelling stories possible. You're already talking to two people that are thinking about people of different genders, walks of life, came up through different financial situations, ethnicities, race, I mean, just everything. And it's because it's who we are and it's the way that we had to have our career. It's the way that we had to fight and make sure that we were heard and we had a voice. And even after we got the job, we're still interviewing for the job constantly because people's expectations are X, Y, Z, because they walk in with their own preconceived notions. Those are all the things that over the past X years we've had to deal with in order to get to where we are today. So we're going to make sure that the next Rochelle King and the next Steve Johnson, who still might even be in college, when they come up, at least through our organizations, they're not going to have to fight those things. They're already kind of baked into the fabric of the way of which we manage and run organizations. Let's stick into that a little bit more, because I think that's a really important distinction that you've just made. When you think about that next generation that's coming up, how do you find them and nurture their growth and bring them in to maybe not necessarily to your teams directly, hopefully, but also help them find their way in their career in other places? I have, especially the last several years, tried to be more active about just reaching out to students at college and universities are making myself available to organizations. So that younger generation of, of folks that are interested in getting in and trying to give advice and things like that. And so 
often where I'm not in a position to directly hire someone because they're still in college or they haven't gotten that, that experience yet. But I do think that giving folks exposure and access to hearing what I'm thinking about or to give them some of the advice that I wish that I had had, <laughs> you know, is a way to get that done. And so I, I would say that that's one of the things that I do think about and have put more time into. As an aside, like I know that I negotiated with you all to give some donation to an organization <laughs> of, of Envision software to an organization that, that I work with that's trying to bring folks up in, in the industry too. And so I think it's things like that that we all do to try to just give access and take some of our privilege that we've earned and, and try to help spread that out more. That's, I think, pretty important. There's a lot of things that I try to do where if you reach out to me, I mean, I'm going to try to have a conversation with you, sometimes to a fault in that it comes at the expense of time. But I believe that it's time well spent because it's time that I know that when I was younger in my career, I wish somebody had invested. And it just takes a couple of minutes to just respond to an email or look at someone's portfolio on LinkedIn, et cetera. I don't do a lot of conferences, but when I do, I normally try to figure out what's the impact, who's going to be there and how diverse is the audience. You can get me to go to almost any conference that has women in tech, people of color, different communities, the whole bit, all good to those. I think that the big thing about giving back is always remembering where you came from yourself. I do not believe I'm above anybody. I simply do not. And this entire power dynamic that Rochelle and I have now because our titles make it seem like we're at this certain place, I'll speak for her. We actively fight against that to make sure that when we meet new people, if you are the newest person to the company that is new in their career, you're the folks that we're going to sit down and we're going to have conversations with as much as humanly possible because we know that that is going to be so much more meaningful and it'll hopefully bridge that gap to where when I see you in the hallway, you're still going to talk to me. Back when the offices were open, I would be in an elevator having conversations with people that like we would walk out and my boss is like, how do you even know them? And it's because you've got to take the time to talk to everybody because at the end of the day, without the people who are doing the work every single day, the company collapses and I promised myself when I was younger, never believing that I would get to where I am today. I said, God, if I ever get there, I'm going to remember what it's like to be here. And I'm not going to treat people the way that they've been treating me. And that literally is my first principle of the way of which we work with people. And if it's an extra hour on the phone, having a conversation with a designer that's having a struggle because she just started and she doesn't quite know if this is the right place for her, that's an hour very well spent. Yeah. Steve is one of the most generous people that I know. Maybe the thing I'll add is I, I have learned to be selectively generous with my time. When you do something, be generous with it, but be thoughtful and selective about where that time makes the most impact. So real quick follow-up here, the people listening to you right now, we're talking tens of thousands of designers and design leaders working in all sorts of different companies and markets, sectors, and so forth. What advice would you give them right now that would help them bring more diverse thinking, diversity of perspective to their teams and to their work? I will say that I think I've built out a fairly diverse network of folks, but it takes years, you know, it takes time and it takes curiosity, right? And trying to reach out to places that you're not as familiar with or not as comfortable with. But I, I do think that patience is a really important virtue here because nothing happens overnight. As you start to meet one person, you meet another and you you kind of work together and you build up more of a relationship, etc. I would say that it's really thinking more about it on a human connect to one person, that person connects you to more folks and thinking about that. I think that that's probably the best way to do it because it's perhaps the longest lasting way to build a network and to bring more folks in. And what's been interesting to me is that I'm going to use this term, which I'm, I'm not sure I like, but as you start to build a reputation for being someone who helps to cultivate diverse perspectives and diverse voices, or as you build a reputation for being a person who creates teams where people feel comfortable and people feel like they can really excel by being who they are, then that also then starts to attract more folks in. And, and the only reason I said that I don't quite like that is because the word reputation sometimes comes across as you're doing it for 
like your own tooting your own horn or like some kind of superficial thing. And so that can't be the motivation. The motivation can't be to just build the, the quote reputation, right? It has to be about the actual underlying work underneath. But I think what happens is that if that reputation is well-earned and true and actually what you create and a well-deserved reputation, then I think it does bring in folks that start to seek you out because they know that they can come to you for those sorts of things. I like the question because it's hard and it's something that we get asked a lot, but I'm going to be consistent. You have to build an organization that is as reflective of your target audience as humanly possible. That's it. And there's no excuse. You know, I have conversations with people at certain companies that I'll spare naming right now, but they're massive, huge companies that have domination in all these areas around the world. For some reason, there's no black VPs. The hell is that about? It's not possible that you could not have found a unique perspective in that room. And when you're in whatever that room of power is, be it a board meeting, be it a design review, be it whatever, and you're looking around and everybody is the same, but you're trying to figure out why you guys can't be successful in XYZ country, that's why. If you're not going to say to yourself, it's important for me to create a community of people that have an opinion different than mine. If you're not big enough to do that, A, I question if you should be in your current role, but I'll move on to B. Then B, at least say, we are not going to be successful as a company until we have the appropriate representation of our customer. Full stop. Right. And that doesn't mean, oh, hey, let's go hire a whole bunch of interns from these other areas. No, 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 no. You need people that can make decisions in the room that reflect the market that you're going after. If you want to be the product of choice for a community of people that feel an emotional attachment to that product, I am convinced. I can be debated on constantly about some anomalies and I'll say, Okay, I mean, there's definitely some things out there where maybe that didn't happen. But as the world gets smaller, as the price of semiconductors go down, as you're getting chips that are so much faster and doing so much more, our iPhones have more computing power in it than I ever had when I was a kid ever. When you can start getting things that are so much more powerful, so much faster at a lower price, the difference between product A and product B is the user experience. How does it make me feel? And does it feel to me like it was made for me? Does it feel like it gets me? Does it feel like it understands me? And those little nuances, you might say, well, does it really matter? Yes, it matters. It matters. It matters. It matters. Ask people why they feel good about certain products. And they'll almost always talk about, A, it does what they need it to do simply and easily. It's reliable. They trust it because it's consistent and they feel that it gets them. That's the reason why when companies say, oh, sorry, we can't find any designers from XYZ, I say, you're not trying hard enough because you should even change your hiring practice. If you keep on giving people the same test over and over again, and for some reason that means that you can't hire any Latinos, then maybe you change the test, <laughs> you know? But we keep on trying to say, well, this has to work because that's how we got here. But what got you here isn't going to get you there. If you want to be a global company, I've heard the, we're going to make a bet. We're going to take a risk. We don't want to lower the bar. All those things are statements and sentences that people that are terrified to try throw out as a defeatist mechanism because they simply won't put in the work. Look, I get it. You know, I mean, I've been to most of the design schools. I've given talks, you know, like one of my favorite design schools is CMU. Like I love Carnegie Mellon. And I remember I used to go talk there and I'm looking at all these kids and I didn't see one person in there that looked like me. Like it was amazing. Like it was such it was such a horrible feeling to be a design executive from LinkedIn going to Carnegie Mellon every year. And the only minorities I saw there were working in the kitchen. Like it was horrible. So I understand when people say that we can't find, but the thing is, is this, maybe you shouldn't hire people out of design schools. <laughs> you know, you can then get some people from design schools, some people from engineering schools, some people from business schools, some people from maybe they didn't go to school. Maybe it's just some freelance artists. You can go on YouTube or Instagram right now and find tons of young, talented individuals 
that have massive amounts of expression. And then if you can have them translate what they did on Insta or TikTok into an interface, that learning is simple because now you're just teaching them how to use the tool. But the hard thing that I find that you can't teach, which is the passion and the heart, I already got that. Just help them learn how to translate it. So that's the type of thing that I think Silicon Valley specifically, our industry has the capabilities to do because of our global reach. But a lot of my colleagues that have titles like mine and positions like mine with the kind of success that we have won't do it. We just keep on doing the same thing over and over. And that's why I get so passionate about this is because it can be done if you try and if you think as creatively about hiring a diverse team as you do about building world groundbreaking products. So Steve and Rochelle, we've got you here. You're both at Netflix. And recently, my mom recommended to me a really great series, Midnight Diner. And I think it's a little more obscure, but I've been loving it. We wanted to ask both of you, could you recommend something that you've been loving on the platform that's maybe not as well known? Not Stranger Things, but something that, that people might not know about that you love. I'm going to have to think a little bit about something not as well known because I was going to say The Queen's Gambit. I love it. It's so good. Which just came out and folks really love and, and I do too. By the way, I love Midnight Diner. I often use Midnight Diner as a metaphor for what we're trying to accomplish at Netflix. It's a guy who runs this diner that opens at midnight and he will make whatever you want as long as he has the ingredients in his kitchen. And so I always use it as a metaphor for Netflix because I say that's the kind of experience we want to deliver. It's personalized and local. And so it's a perfect, it's a great show. You know, I told you that story earlier about K-drama and then I was not into K-drama at all. And so now I watch a lot of K-drama because my team has started to rec recommend it to me. I like Memories of Alhambra, which is a mix of sci-fi and your standard K-drama fare, which means that there's a little bit of romance in it, but there's like AR stuff in it. I liked that show. I was binging Enter the Badlands because it kind of feels like the Matrix on steroids. I was watching Wu Assassins because I just thought that that was badass. I loved Evil, which is, you know, great. And then... Unsolved Mysteries is always interesting for me because I like, you know, crime drama. But honestly, I think most of the things that I love are somewhat well known. We, Rochelle and I, um, everybody in the company has something called preview content. We have an opportunity to see some things before they launch. So I find that I tend to binge stuff that nobody even knows about because by the time it comes out and everyone's talking about it, I won't have time to watch it. So there are some shows that I'm enjoying now that aren't out yet that I don't think that we can, you know, talk about. What I'm loving about the revolution right now is we're finally getting back to really good storytelling because we're realizing people have access to everything. So now we got to make sure we get back to great writing and great storytelling. Well, on that note, Steve and Rochelle, so wonderful having you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Talk to you guys soon. Yeah, thank you.